call a flyover of the book of Colossians. This is the New Testament book that we're going to be walking through together verse by verse. And I do think it's important when you're studying a book of the Bible to first kind of step back and get the bigger picture, the bird's eye view of what the book is all about before really diving into the details. And as we go through this, I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, I read a lot of different scholars and Bible teachers in my study, but I want you to know that I have been very deeply influenced by a, a pastor in Florida named Tullian Chivigian. He's Billy Graham's uh, grandson, by the way. And uh, he has helped me immensely to see the book of Colossians through a Christ-centered lens. And so I'm indebted to him. I'm also recommending his book during this series that's titled Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Isn't that a great title? I wish I'd thought of it. And it's a great read. If you get it and read it, you will see his influence on my perspective. Well, you can take the study guide out of your worship folder and follow along. The book of Colossians in your Bible, you probably know this, was actually a letter written by Paul the Apostle to a body of believers, a church located in a city called Colossae. Say Colossae. Colossae. So we live in Columbus. They lived in Colossae. And that city was part of a tri-city area in the Lycus Valley in what is now known as the south-central region of Turkey, so on the other side of the world. Colossae was a marketing center, a commercial hub. Lots of people traveled in and out of that city with lots of different ideas, and so it had become, like our city of Columbus, a very pluralistic city. Lots of ideas floating around, lots of philosophies vying for supremacy in that city. And Paul knew that if Jesus was ever going to reign supreme in the city of Colossae, he first needed to reign supreme in the hearts of his people who lived there and worshiped there. And that's really the theme of this letter to the Colossians, the supremacy of Jesus over all things. We thought about calling this series uh, Jesus Supreme, but one of our teams said, that sounds like a pizza. So we scrapped that idea and we went with Jesus first, Jesus Supreme over all things, above everything else. Key verse of Colossians is probably 118 of Colossians. Let's read this aloud together, speaking of Jesus Christ. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And in this letter... Paul aims to establish the superiority of Jesus Christ over every human tradition, every human worldview and philosophy. He's going to make the case that Jesus towers over all of it. Amen? Every human philosophy that competes for preeminence in our culture and in our own hearts, like naturalism, materialism, humanism, atheism, narcissism, Hedonism, atheism, dualism, Gnosticism, moralism. We'll talk a lot about that. Legalism, New Ageism, and any other ism that mankind might yet invent. Jesus is supreme over all of that. Paul contends that to base our identity and pin our hopes on anything other than Jesus Christ is not only destined to disappoint, but is in effect idolatry. So I want to do an overview of Colossians. I want to do it uh, in three layers. First, the structure of Colossians. Second, the stature of Colossians. And third, the significance of 
the book of Colossians. So let's think about first the structure of Colossians, how it's put together, this letter. And I would say this, like most of Paul's letters, Colossians is neatly divided into two parts. You might recall that the Apostle Peter once wrote that the things that Brother Paul wrote were very puzzling and hard to understand. Paul wrote of very lofty ideas and concepts. But even if it's true that the content of Paul's writings is sometimes hard to understand, the construction of his letters is not. It's very simple. Just about all of Paul's letters follow this same pattern. Two sections. We find it in Colossians. Chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians are doctrinal. Chapters 3 and 4 are practical. Chapters 1 and 2, he lays out truth that we need to believe. Chapters 3 and 4, truth that we need to behave, that we need to live. The first two chapters are vertical truth. It's about our relationship with God. But in chapters 3 and 4, he talks about our horizontal relationships and our life on that plane. For you English majors, chapters 1 and 2 talk about the indicatives, the declarations that God has made on our behalf, and chapters 3 and 4 talk about the imperatives, how we should then live. Chapters 1 and 2, what God has done. Chapters 3 and 4, what God's people should do. This is very interesting. The Bible is so rich that we can not only learn from what the Bible says, but also by how it says things. How it's structured. As Brian Chappell likes to say, the gospel shapes its containers. And since scripture contains the gospel, its very structure is shaped by gospel truth. So here's what we see. First, what God has done for us in Christ. Then, how we should live as a result. And maybe you're asking, so why is that important? Here's why. It distinguishes the gospel from moralism and moralistic religion. You say, well, what's moralism? Well, moralism operates on this principle. If I improve my behavior, then I will be accepted. Does that sound familiar? If I improve my behavior, then I will be accepted and approved of. Moralism as a philosophy of life declares that the approval of others is based on how well I perform. Performing better is what will cause people to regard me highly. And many of you have experienced how embracing moralism as a philosophy of life automatically places you on the performance treadmill, doesn't it? You have to keep performing to keep feeling accepted and approved. As they say, you're only as good as your last win, your last victory, right? That's the way it works in our culture, in our society. Like it or not, Our culture, your workplace, the economy, all this is based on this principle. If I improve my behavior, then I will be accepted. Now, when that philosophy of moralism is applied to how people relate to God, it could be called moralistic religion, which says this, if I improve my behavior, then God will accept me. Then God will approve of me. Remember the older brother in the parable? He represents the moralists. And, you know, I've been in church a long time, and I know that many church people would claim Christianity as their philosophy of life, but the way it plays out in their minds and in their behaviors is really nothing more than religious moralism. 
they might not admit it, but down deep, they believe that God's approval of them, God's smile on their life is based on how well they're doing at keeping God's rules. They think like this, if I keep God's rules, God will bless me, he will give me his favor, and if I don't, he'll send me to hell. Or at least make my life very miserable here on the earth. And that's really just moralism applied to God. And people who live that way, if they're honest, would testify that it is exhausting. It's exhausting. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But we'll get into that. That's moralism. The gospel is quite different. In fact, it's the opposite. Instead of saying, you must behave well in order to be approved, the gospel declares, I'm already accepted, and I already have God's approval in Christ. And as a result, my behavior will improve. Now, some of you are hearing what I'm saying about moralism, and you think I'm preaching against morality. I'm not. Morality is a good thing. God is concerned about our behavior But the order, the sequence is very important here and it distinguishes the gospel as a philosophy of life from moralism. You see, acceptance precedes moral improvement. I'm going to say this a hundred times the next seven or eight weeks, okay? The gospel declares that God's approval of me is not based on my performance for him, but on Jesus' performance for him on my behalf. Let me say that again. Because it's, it's, it's counterintuitive. It's, it's countercultural. God's acceptance and approval of me is not based on my performance for him. It's based on Jesus' performance for him on my behalf. That's gospel truth. And that's good stuff. As I come to understand that better and better, my behavior will inevitably improve. It's the strangest thing. In other words, growing in obedience to Jesus doesn't begin with behaving better, but with believing better. Now, for some of you, that thought is so foreign that you just short-circuited right now, and you're going to check out on me. Don't check out on me! This is too good. You've got to get this. I've got to get it deeper in my spirit. The very structure of this letter to the Colossians shows us this truth. Paul shows first, first what God has done for his people in Christ, and only after that does he explain what our life should look like as a result. Instructions about our behavior don't even begin until chapter 3. Paul never begins his letters with what Christians should do. He always begins his letters with what God has done for us first. Because understanding that is the fuel the fuel for real, lasting transformation and change in our lives. So that's the structure of Colossians. First, what God has done for us in Christ, then our life as a result. How about the stature of Colossians? Let's talk about that for a minute, the stature. Paul doesn't give us any new doctrine in this book. The doctrine he teaches in Colossians is also found elsewhere. So what's special about Colossians is not its doctrine, but its dimensions. I'm going to give you a phrase. I hope you remember it. Paul makes colossal statements in Colossians about Jesus and about the gospel. Colossal statements, huge 
sweeping statements about Jesus Christ. No New Testament letter stresses the utter and complete supremacy of Jesus quite the way that Colossians does. One man said this, the focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ in Colossians reaches heights of expression that rival anything said about Christ elsewhere in Scripture. So true. As an example, look at chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That's a huge statement. One commentator wrote this, Paul wrote these verses in a state of controlled ecstasy. (laughs) Overwhelmed by the sweeping scope and range of Christ's supremacy and authority in the universe. He says all things six times in five verses. All things. He's over all things. He rules over all things. He made all things. That's a pretty large range, isn't it? (laughs) The sweeping extent of Christ's authority. There's a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper who said this. Listen, there is not one square inch. There's not one square inch in all of God's creation that Jesus does not cry out, Mine. (laughs) No one else can say that. In Colossians, Paul makes huge declarations about Jesus Christ and also about Jesus' gospel. It becomes very clear early on in the letter that Paul believes in a gospel that is larger than many people think. For example, Colossians 1, beginning in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this, this hope of heaven, You have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul's talking here about the size of the gospel message. It's big, he says. It's huge. He says it's not only growing wider in the world, but it's growing deeper in you Christians. Yes, it's spreading all over the globe. It's reaching non-believers. But it's also having, he writes, an ongoing effect in you, believers, since the first day you heard it. It's been bearing fruit. Get this. This is my chief learning the last two years. I've told you this before. The gospel is not just for non-Christians. It's for Christians, too. Let me say that again. The gospel is not just for non-Christians. It's for Christians too. It is. As one man said, the gospel doesn't just ignite the Christian life and get it off the pad. The gospel is the fuel that keeps Christians going and growing every day. Do you believe that? I'm coming to believe that. And in Colossians, we're going to find the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel often to Christians. For example, chapter 1, verse 11. It's a great prayer praise for the the Colossian church. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You can pray that for a brother or sister in the Lord. 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's that? That's the gospel. That's the good news. Paul's preaching it to Christians. And some of you are thinking, well, why do Christians need to hear the gospel? I thought the gospel was that message that when you believed it, it got you in, it got you saved, but then you kind of left it behind and moved on to other things. (laughs) In Paul's mind, Christians needed to hear gospel truth as much as non-Christians do. You and I need to regularly be reminded of all that God has done for us in Christ. Why? So that we don't forget. So that we don't spend our lives as approval addicts, wearily pounding away on the performance treadmill, trying to earn our Father's approval and love when we already have it in Christ. That's why we need to be reminded of the gospel truth often. Jesus hung on the cross and he did not say, it is nearly almost finished. It's halfway done. It just requires a little bit of your performance added to mine to finish it off. He did not say that. He said it's finished. (laughs) I've performed what's needed fully for you. It's done. It's done. You can't add any thing to Jesus' finished work. Tetelestai is the Greek word. Finished. Paid in full. So what is Paul saying in Colossians? He's saying Jesus is big. The gospel is big. Our sin is big. But God's grace is big. And our rescue is even bigger. Into the milieu of competing philosophies in that world, Paul interjects the notion that there is nothing bigger than Jesus Christ So why would you set your hope on anything smaller than Jesus? That the gospel of Jesus is huge. So don't believe the hype that the world is telling you and selling you. That's Paul's mission in this letter, his pastoral mission. That's the stature of Colossians, to paint a huge picture of Jesus Christ and a huge picture of the gospel. How about the significance of Colossians? What in the world could a letter written in 60 A.D. matter to sophisticated modern people living in the 21st century? What possible relevance could it have for us? Well, (laughs) I'm telling you, Colossians addresses two key issues that you and I face every single day in our lives. Number one, our identity. And number two, idolatry. Think about identity for a moment. How you perceive yourself. How I perceive myself. That's our identity, right? We live out of our identity every day. And the world tempts us, doesn't it, to find our identity and to base our identity in something or someone smaller than Jesus. Our culture bombards us every day with the message that our worth is directly tied to human approval which is tied to our performance. I mean, we get that every single day. You are valuable and worth something because of how you perform. That's what's going to cause people to approve of you, achieve certain goals, perform at a certain level, make friends with the right kind of people, and you will be valued. 
And you will experience the fruits of that value, like success and freedom and approval and happiness. That's what we're told, and that's what we're sold. In Colossians, though, Paul liberates God's people from all of that by showing that our identity is not located in what we can do. Our identity is not located in what we can do or even the kind of people we can become. Our identity is located in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. That's Christian's special position. In Him. Given to us by God. That's a central theme in Colossians. For example, chapter 2. Verse 6, beginning there. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. In Colossians, we're going to see that God made provision for His people in Christ to free them up from approval addiction. You know what approval addiction is, right? People pleasing on steroids. Got to make people happy. Got to do whatever it takes to get them to like me, to approve of me, to accept me. That's approval addiction. And many, many, many people are plagued by that every day. And it's because they do not understand yet that as believers, their identity is in Christ. It's located there, not in their own performance and not even in others' approval of them. Does that make sense? Some of you are looking at me with really weird looks. And I know that this is counter-cultural, but it's true. You're either going to believe what people in this world are telling you or you're going to believe what God says is about, about you. Which are you going to believe? Which am I going to believe? As believers, we're in Christ. We're going to see that we don't have to spend our lives trying to earn the approval or acceptance, or even affection of God himself, or even of those around us, because Jesus has already earned for us the most important approval of all from the God of the universe. Do you believe that? The gospel is better news than you thought. It's better news than I thought. It changes everything about our identity. God placed us in Christ Those who are in Christ are as pleasing to God as his own beloved son. (laughs) And it does, it's not based on how good we've been or not been. It's based on Jesus' performance on the cross. So the gospel liberates us from approval addiction and from the performance treadmill, the exhausting performance treadmill of having to try to keep making it happen in order to keep feeling approved and accepted. The gospel liberates us from that. In Christ, we've been liberated from the pressure of always having to perform and perform and perform, and then when our performance dips, of pretending that we're performing better than we are. Free from all that junk. 
what relevance does Colossians have for modern, sophisticated people? Listen, Colossians will change your life in 2012 if you let it. If you let it speak to you deeply at a deep, deep level. Because everything we deeply want as humans, we already have in Christ. Marinate your mind in that truth. It will change your marriage. It will change your parenting. It will change your work habits. It will change your ministry. Because that speaks to you at the core of your being, your identity, who you are, how you perceive yourself. Listen, in Christ, you already have everything you need, so you're free to spend your life giving instead of taking. Instead of clawing and grasping and grabbing, trying to fill up that emptiness, you already have what you need in Christ. So you can spend your life being generous and giving yourself away to God and to others. Gospel is better news than we thought. It transforms our identity. It also addresses another topic that relates to our lives, and that's idolatry. Some of you hear that and you think, well, I'm, you know, I don't have a little shrine in my home with an idol that I bow down to and light candles and burn incense and that sort of thing. Well, but what is idolatry at its core? Idolatry is the practice of wrapping your whole life around something other than God. I mean, that's really what idolatry is. Do people do that? Do Christian people do that? Sure we do. People who call themselves Christians sometimes offer themselves to something other than Jesus because they become convinced that that thing will bring them greater happiness and fulfillment than Jesus. And their whole identity becomes wrapped up in that thing or that person, whatever it is, it begins to define them. And you know what? So often it's a good thing, not an evil thing. I mean, does anybody really wrap their whole life around a house? Does anybody really do that? Or a hobby? Or another person? Or a career? Or money? Or a relationship? Or sports? Or a sports team? I mean, does anybody really wrap their whole life around a sports team? Does that ever happen? How about sexual pleasure? Or a hobby? Or a dream? Mark Driscoll has said this. When a good thing becomes a God thing, that's a bad thing. Let me say that again. When a good thing, a gift from God that he's provided, when a good thing becomes in your heart a God thing, something you wrap your whole life around, that's a bad thing. Because that's idolatry. That's giving something else a place in your heart that should be reserved for Jesus. Colossians will reveal to us the truth that idolatry is not only a non-Christian problem, it's a Christian issue too. Chapter 3 and verse 5, put to death, therefore, this is in chapter 3 now, so now he's talking behavior, right? He's talking about horizontal, how we live. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Listen, God intends to expose the idolatry in our hearts. Perhaps in your life, the pain you are experiencing in your life right now is actually God prying open your hands to get you to release 
the gifts back to him that he gave you that have become more cherished and precious to you than the giver of the gifts. God is not above that. One man said God is radically committed to smashing all the idols in our lives so that Christ will be preeminent and reign supreme in us. That's certainly been true in my experience. Well, what a book this is, Colossians. I believe the Lord is determined to use this letter to transform us at a deep level. I couldn't be more excited about where we're going the next few weeks in unpacking this book. And I pray that God will get you there as well. Well, in a couple minutes that remain, let's end to get today with the beginning of Colossians, the first two verses of this letter. Just a couple minutes here, the introduction. Paul gets his quill, or whatever, and he begins to pen this letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Notice Paul's authority. He writes not just as a concerned pastor, he is that, but as one who is specially chosen by God to speak for God, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God chose me, he said, to be his spokesman. And I'm going to be writing truth to you from the very mouth of God. With his spiritual son Timothy by his side, he writes, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To the saints. What a beautiful and stunning description of God's people. Saints are those who are specially chosen and set apart by God for his holy purposes. It's not a special class of Christians that you pray to. Not in Scripture. Saints is one of Paul's favorite titles for all true believers. Saints. You are sitting in rows today with some saints. If your spouse is a believer, you're married to a saint. And they wish you would act like a saint to them. I guarantee you that. Faithful brothers probably refers to a particular group of men there in that church, most likely the leadership, the pastors and elders there. And then notice the greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And we're just we're tempted to just kind of gloss over this, right? Like it's, a, it's the common greeting and welcome and so forth. But it's more than that. Grace to you and peace. You see, this man Paul was so obsessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ that he could hardly say hello without injecting some gospel truth. And that's what he does here. These two words, grace and peace, give us two beautiful gospel truths. Grace, of course, is the root of the gospel. Everything in Christianity flows from the grace of God. All other belief systems in the world flow from another root, the root of human ascent, human achievement, human works. But Christianity flows down to us in God's descent in grace. His unconditional acceptance and favor lavished on undeserving people who simply believe. That's awesome, isn't it? Grace to you, he says, and peace. Peace. And so grace is the root of the gospel, but peace is the fruit of the gospel. The gospel begins with grace and results in peace. Peace with God. Later on, Paul will write this, For in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. 
And so those who were at war with God, like us, who made themselves enemies of God because of our sin and idolatry can now by his grace offered to us in the cross of Christ actually be at peace with God. No longer enemies. Reconciled to God. No longer enemies. Now friends of God. Sons and daughters of God. Reconciled with God. At peace with God. And he did it by his grace. Amen? Grace, the root of the gospel, and peace, the fruit of the gospel. And so what we'll be diving into the next few weeks, we'll expand on those gospel themes. And I believe will change us at the very core of our being. So would you stand with me and let's pray towards that end together, can we? As we prepare to respond in worship, would you bow your heads? How many of you struggle? Raise your hands. I struggle with approval addiction, Steve, with being people-pleasing. I struggle with that. Raise your hands, would you? It'll make me happy. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> many of us do. Many of us do. How many of us would raise our hands and say, that performance treadmill, I, I've lived that. I've been on that in my life. Feeling like i got to perform in order to be accepted and approved. Yeah. I want to pray that God, through this study in Colossians, will just set his people free from those things, okay? So, Lord God, thank you for this wonderful book, this teaching we've received of what it means to have our identity in Christ. Thank you that we don't have to try to perform better every day in order to gain your approval, but in Christ we already have it. And I pray that you would set your people free from approval addiction, God. Do it through your word and your spirit. May that work begin today. If it hasn't begun already, may it begin today. Set your people free from performance trap, the performance treadmill that's so exhausting and leaves us either proud of our accomplishments or burnout and despairing. Lord, breathe fresh life into your people today and throughout our study together. May we marvel at Jesus Christ, love his gospel, and see how much bigger it is than what we thought. Receive our worship now, I pray, in your precious name. Amen. Amen.